we take a moment to pray before we begin the message? Lord, quiet our hearts. Give us an ability to focus on what you have for us tonight. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Amen. My first close encounter with death came the summer that I turned 15, when my grandmother passed away. Now, we had a very close relationship, and as I struggled with this loss, my father encouraged me to memorize and rely on Psalm 73, 25, and 26. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, a few years later, as a college student, these verses sustained me once again as I coped with saying goodbye to my father, who passed away with a brain tumor in his 40s. And the immediate need for solace during hurtful times has led me to treasure these two very special verses. And I still often include them in notes of encouragement and sympathy. But as I have grown in my spiritual journey, I've learned that this entire psalm is a rich one because it captures the arc of our Christian journey of slipping away and finding our way back to God which is unfortunately too often repeated as we travel along. This evening, I want to spend some time just walking through this psalm together to discover what lessons the psalmist may have for each of us in our individual journeys. So let's start with verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now the psalmist starts where we all have to do, no matter Where we're going on this journey, we have to start anchored in foundational principles based on essentials, values, and beliefs. And these beliefs and values can't just be pulled out of thin air. They have to be biblically based. And this is something we all learned about in Sunday school. God's, or vacation Bible school maybe. (laughs) God's goodness. God is good, right? And so the psalmist starts there. But notice, it's not a blanket goodness but it's to his people, Israel, which includes us now as believers, and to those who are pure in heart. There's an expectation there. After stating this foundational principle, the psalmist uses the rest of this psalm to explore his growing disbelief in the truth of God's goodness. Now, he starts to convince himself that God's goodness isn't at work in the world, and he begins to slip away from this truth. And so I want, as we look at the rest of the psalm, it's kind of, it's divided into three basic sessions, sections, how the psalmist got into temptation, how he got out of it, and most importantly, how he grew and learned from this temptation. So let's start with verses 2 through 14, this first section, how the psalmist got into temptation. Verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now you see, when doubts creep, creep in, sometimes it's hard to stay on the path that God has for us because we don't, we don't know where this path is going to take us next. 
we have to operate in trust. And now we see through a glass darkly. And it's not until we get to heaven are we going to see face to face and understand what this path was all about. We often don't get it when we're walking right through it. And then the psalmist begins to explain how and why he nearly slipped away from God completely. And this is so easy to do because what we believe and what, what, our faith, what our faith is often just seems to clash with what our experiences are in real life. And this clash can create major problems for us. Verse 3, for I was envious of the arrogant and I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You see, our faith is not only challenged sometimes when we hit big disasters, death, divorce, loss of a job, uh, many other things. It's not just that, but it's often the little things. And that's what happened with the psalmist. His foot slipped off the path when he, well, got involved with what Shakespeare calls that green-eyed monster, jealousy. And that will get us into trouble every time. And it, it led him right down the path. Now we're going to look at verses 4 through 8, kind of right in a row here. For the, so the, he looks and he says, I got jealous of these people because I looked at them and they have no pain. Their bodies are sound and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not plagued like other people. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes swell out with fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. These are people who, no matter what they seem to do, they thrive. And we, we don't have to look very far, probably, in our lives. We know people personally like this, and we certainly know a lot of public figures like this. And, I, and verse 8 just speaks to me because he's talking about bullies in our lives. And we all face bullies, and we get angry because they don't, get in, they don't seem to get in trouble. You know? And they, they, they just use their power in really detrimental ways. And, and that's what the psalmist is saying here. What's going on here? Number nine, they set their mouths against heaven and their tongues range over the earth. This is back to their arrogance. You see, arrogance is a big theme through all of this. And, and what we have to be careful here is they set their mouths against heaven. This speaks can speak to us as well because sometimes we may not set our mouth against heaven, but we can act with a sense of self-sufficiency, a sense that, well, maybe we say we believe, but we're often acting as though there isn't a power beyond us, that we, we got it figured out. We can handle this. Verse 10, therefore the people turn and praise them and find no fault in them. So here you have these people. These arrogant, wealthy people who, who seem self-sufficient, who seem like they don't need God, and they fool people all the time. We say, well, you know, we, and we see this very frequently in our culture. You know, it's like, how can people not see what they're doing? <laughs> okay? And this is what the, the psalmist is speaking about this. I will tell you about verse 10, just honesty and transparency here. This is a very difficult verse, and there are many different translations, and, and often there's a footnote in any of the translations that say 
the Hebrew is very confusing here. We haven't quite figured it out. And I don't read Hebrew, so I'm not even going to pretend. But I want to let you know. That's a, verse 10 is a complicated one. And then verse 11. Ah, and then they get to it when they set their mouths against heaven. Here are some things they say. How can God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? And again, sometimes, I don't think I'd ever dare to say this, but I act like it sometimes. I think, you know, well, really, this doesn't seem to be going the way I think it should. This doesn't seem to be God's goodness at work. Really, God, you sure you got this, God? But this verse, when you have people talking like this, it also reminds me that as believers, we do need to have a basis for being able to respond to those who challenge our faith. We need to be able to answer and stand up sometimes. I'm not talking about arguing, but being ready with answers that, that testify to our faith and our understanding of biblical principles. Verse 12, such are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. And the psalmist then comes in verse 13 and 14 to the real crux of this temptation to cast off his religion. Verse 13 and 14, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. <laughs> For all day long, I have been plagued and am punished every morning. Now, at this point, I usually have to stop and deal a little bit with the conviction inherent in these verses. Because the, this, is, this is the why bother moment for the psalmist. He says, look, I'm a good guy. Okay? Or, of course, it was, we, the psalmist was Asaph, so we assume it was a man. I keep wanting to use some feminine gender pronouns in here as well. Okay? Because it applies to me as well. And, and so sometimes I look at this and I say, well, you know, maybe my hands are, and my heart are not as clean and pure as they should be. But nevertheless, the psalmist believes his R's here. And, and he really comes to the why bother. He says, you know, I've done all this. And what good has it done me? I go to church. I keep a prayer journal. I'm part of a small group. How come you're not giving me these things? How come I can't enjoy the good life that I see others have? Ah, uh, and this really, we're really on a slippery slope here. Because you see, this isn't about a pure heart. And suddenly we've tried to make a relationship with God that's a quid pro quo. I do this for you, you should give me this. And boy, that's very far from the relationship that we need with our Savior, who gave his lifeblood for us, and whose grace is given freely. Okay. And then we come to the second section. This section deals with how he got into the, trans into the temptation. In verses 15 and 20, we see how he got himself out of this temptation. And note, as we go through these verses, that he did this by degrees and through some very important self-reflection. And also very importantly, right at the outset, he had w enough wisdom to know to think long before he started speaking. Verse 15, if I had said, I will talk on in this way, I would have been untrue to the circle of your children 
And this verse is such an important reminder to us that as Christians, as believers, we have a responsibility to set examples to others. We have a responsibility to think carefully before we speak. I often think doubts are fine. God can handle our doubts, but sometimes it's important, and this is what the psalmist does, he takes these doubts and these questions to God. He starts there first. Verse 16, but when I had thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Sometimes sorting through our Christian journey and our Christian life and what's going on and trying to make sense of it, trying to seek God's justice and mercy in the midst of difficulties, it's not easy. It's sometimes hard work because we just often cannot make sense of the injustice of the world until we spend time alone with God. And that takes us to verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Now, I think here the sanctuary does not necessarily mean the worship center on Sunday morning. Now, don't misunderstand me. <laughs> I think that we learn a lot about God's character, his mercy, his justice, his goodness when we, when we attend Sunday school, when we sit and listen carefully to the sermons. But I think this is talking about the sanctuary of God as a sacred space that we create for God in a disciplined, devotional life where we set aside time to be alone with God because then God can lead us to a deeper understanding of eternal truths. Then we can see clearly that our, our icons of celebrity and our symbols of success, God will put those into perspective for us if we spend time with God. Verse 18, 19, and 20, Truly, you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. On awaking, you despise their phantoms. Uh, the New International Version tra uh, translates fantasies, or excuse me, translates phantoms as fantasies. And one commentator notes about these verses that when God's judgment comes, prosperity will seem like a dream. And, and that's hard for us sometimes because it's God's time. It's not ours, okay? And then we get to the section C. What has the psalmist learned from working through this temptation? Well, I think a couple of things right up front. He learns a lot of humility and that negative emotions can block clear thinking for us. Verse 21, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was stupid and ignorant. I was like a brute beast before toward you. Now, what I think is really important here to understand is that, that God doesn't punish the seeker of verses 10 through 17 for the doubts. No, that's not what goes on here. God doesn't punish our doubts. Instead, we see in verse 23 that God takes the person by the right hand 
counsels her, guides her, and promises to receive her into his glorious realm. Verse 23, nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. God has got the hand reaching down to us. And if you're not finding God's hand, who do you think, who do you think has moved? Whose hand has moved? It's not God's. It's ours. And yet, God is always there reaching down to us. I was reminded, you know, last, a, f a couple of Sundays ago, Steve talked, gave that wonderful story from Adam, pleading with God when God was headed out to God and Sodom and Gomorrah, okay? And, you know, Abraham, who had relatives living there, he says, well, you know, will you take care of them if there are 50 people? And then it's 40 people, and God says, yes, and then it's 30, and on down, and God goes, yes, that, yes, Abraham, if I find this many, I'll do it. And I'm, you know, as Steve pointed out in that message, God's, God's justice and mercy go hand in hand. And God doesn't give up, you know? And I, I, I'm, I don't do it every year, but I frequently try to read through the Bible in a year. And every time I go through the Old Testament, I think, these Israelites, they just don't get it because over and over and over, they, they defy God, they do what he doesn't say, and sometimes God punishes them, but nearly always when they come back to God, God, God is there blessing them again, and they're going to do it again, and God knows they're going to do it again, but it's just there, but that's what verse 23 is about. I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. All we have to do is spend time in the sanctuary and get our hands back up there reaching for God. Verse 24, you guide me. Oh, I love verse 24. You guide me with your counsel and after your word you will receive me with honor or the King James Version, you will receive me to glory. And this promise leads the doubter to the remarkable realization of 25 and 26. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I have come to realize that these verses are a comforting, but they're a difficult truth. Because these verses remind us that nothing, no one, not a father, not a grandmother, not a spouse, not a child, will love us the way God loves us. Can we love him more than them? Can we really desire nothing and no one on earth more than we desire God? I don't believe it's a call to love others less, and that certainly hasn't been in my life. But it's a call to realize that earthly loves and possessions and relationships only reflect God's love and heavenly life. These verses, 25 and 26, they call us back to God's perspective, which is, I don't think, ever a particularly easy one, but it is an eternal one because this psalm assures us that doubts and misgivings are natural and they will multiply when we spend more time buffeted by worldly ideas of success instead of time with God, reaching for God's hand to hold. Verse 27, and we're bringing it on home. <laughs> Indeed, those who are far from you will perish. You put an end to those who are false to you. And this is a reminder that taking 
every illness, grief, trial, fear, economic loss, career disappointment, and all our anger and envy at the success of others and what seems to be continued injustice, if we take that to God's sanctuary, it allows us to see more clearly through his eternal perspective. Verse 28, but for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge to tell of all of your works. And this, this verse 28, this is where our hope lies. Not, not in the false dream of power or prestige or riches, but reaching for God's outstretched hand to hold on to. I kept thinking about ways to end this, and maybe I should just let verse, verse 28 sit there. But when I think about this image of reaching for God's hand, I also thought of the words of the chorus of an old gospel song. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. For the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Sing that with me. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace.